Hey everybody, we are back with the That's Criminal podcast hosted by myself. That's Criminals, where we talk true crime, books, authors, writing, and just about whatever else that crosses my mind. Uh, before I get into things today, I wanted to take a minute to thank Robbie and Terry and all the great hosts, readers, and writers uh, for making last week's Space Coast Books Book Conference in Cape Canaveral, Florida, such a blast. And uh, I, I get that that's a pun. And uh, sorry, I just noticed it. <laughs> Cape Canaveral. Um, we got a lot of great feedback on Blood Red Ivory while I was there. People seem to really be enjoying the uh, first Ty Benhoff adventure. Uh, more to come on that. But thank you to everybody who, uh, who gave me those good, uh, the, that good feedback. Also, uh, it was great to spend the majority of the week talking books with like-minded people. So that was awesome. And I'll be doing the same thing again in September at Books at the Beach in Clearwater, Florida. If I'm not mistaken, uh, tickets are still available for that. And you can check out their website, just a quick Google. Today, I'm very excited to talk with Dr. Joni Johnston. Dr. Johnston is a clinical forensic psychologist, private investigator, and crime writer who found her interest in the dark side of human nature after reading Helter Skelter, Vincent Bugliosi's book about the Manson family when she was 14. She has spent her professional career working in prisons, forensic hospitals, and courts, and has worked with both offenders and victims. She also has a passion for communicating forensic psychology to the public, writes a blog for Psychology Today called The Human Equation. She has a YouTube channel called Unmasking a Murderer and a podcast, Behind the Mask. She's a mom of four, a foster mom to dozens of animals, and loves to work out, read, and visit historical places. Me too. Her book, Serial Killers, 101 Questions, True Crime Fans Ask, is, I found it to be fascinating, and it dragged me right down the rabbit hole. Um, she takes fan questions from her various platforms, uses them as, as its own uh, springboard to do to a deep dive on uh, many issues surrounding the phenomenon of the serial killer and why we are so fascinated by true crime. So I'll start by saying this. I thank everyone, uh, Joni, that comes on to take the time to come and join me. Um, but after learning about all the things you're into, it might be better to say thank you for joining me. But also, how did you find time to squeeze me in? I didn't even mention your professional practice. Um, but wow, you have a lot going on. So welcome to That's Criminal. Well, I am really excited to be here. And I really do like talking about true crime and forensic psychology and, you know, all the different issues those raise and how we can talk about these kind of topics in an ethical way, in a helpful way, and those kinds of things. And so I was really impressed by your background. I listened to a couple of episodes and thought, wow, this guy is a great interviewer. So it was not that difficult to find time to come on and talk with you. Uh, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate that. Um, to start, um, being a forensic psychologist, I think uh, I'd like to jump in right there because um, people can often hear you know, the term forensic psychologist, but um, the, it, it's kind of hard sometimes putting those two terms together because forensics kind of works backwards and psychology, you know, studying the human mind backwards, if you think of it that way. So would you uh, mind giving us a kind of a look into what it's like uh, to be a forensic psychologist? Absolutely. Well, one thing I should say is I am a very biased, um, have a biased perspective because I absolutely love what I do. So I think it's like one of the best jobs in the entire world. Um, but basically a forensic psychologist is somebody who 
is a psychologist who specializes in really any situation where there's a legal question that needs some kind of psychological expertise. And so it really is pretty broad. I mean, it could range from, I know in the recent Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, there were a couple of forensic psychologists who evaluated Amber Heard. It could be somebody who is claiming emotional distress as part of an automobile accident. And so they go see a forensic psychologist. And the question is, A, is this person emotionally damaged or distressed? And if so, is it because of their car accident? All the way to somebody who is a defendant in a criminal trial and they're pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. So it's extremely broad. I tend to focus on the criminal arena. That's kind of my bailiwick, but it's much broader than a lot of people think that it is. It's just, like I said, it's just bottom line. When you're a forensic psychologist, you do primarily evaluations, not as much treatment, and you are trying to answer some legal question or provide information or input about it. Uh, applying, uh, applying behavior to an event to see if there's a correlation. Absolutely. And also a lot of times, you know, it's because we're kind of scientists, we're comparing the defendant to other people who are in that same category to see does that person fit. So for example, if I'm evaluating a defendant who's claiming insanity at the time of a crime, I'm going to be looking very specifically at all the things around the offense, you know, how was this person, what, what do witnesses say? What do police reports say? What does this person's psych history say? What do people who knew him say? What is his family saying? But I'm also going to be looking at, you know, his, his, his bigger picture history and looking at, okay, if this person has a certain diagnosis or certain symptoms, what's the likelihood looking at the research that people with these symptoms are likely to be violent? So it's kind of both of those. Yeah, and it's uh, as I was reading, it's not only uh, we'll get into the book in a second, but um, it reminded me uh, I've had limited experience in my career with the forensic psychologist. I think the most in-depth one I ever did was a uh, was an allegation of uh, child abuse, and mm -hmm. it was and I I never had the appreciation for it. I've I worked a bunch of crime scenes, and mm -hmm. the detail and the capture of the circumstances of a crime scene I've applied to elements and and uh, the uh, you know prosecution in the past. But what I found when I worked with um, the forensic child psychologist, they've got the, 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 the victim there that they need to talk to through a very, very filtered mechanism to make sure there's no bias, make sure they're not feeding them anything. But the importance of the detail on the small parts of the statements and the investigative reports and all that stuff that can very easily be overlooked and left out of a report was very important to them in form formulating their game plan and how they actually tried to extrapolate, you know, apply those events to what they were gaining from that, from that child in that case. And it's, uh, it's, it's, I, I hate to use the term fascinating because it's incredibly sad um, mm -hmm. on the outside, but um, to watch that, that technical work, taking, taking the importance of that, the detail oriented reporting and applying that, that's a, that's an extremely difficult uh, job, I would imagine. It is. I mean, I think, you know, people who are working crime scenes to me, and maybe that's why I'm a forensic psychologist and not a crime scene investigator, that to me is so much more difficult and from an emotional standpoint in all different kinds of ways. But I will tell you, those police reports, those witness reports, those initial statements, 
can just be so valuable, especially if we're being asked to somehow reconstruct a person's mental state, or if we're trying to gather information, particularly from a child, for example, as a witness, because those early statements, those early interviews are oftentimes the most credible, as we know. And so things can change over time, not necessarily for diabolical reasons, just because memory can be contaminated and we know those kind of things. And so there's times when I read things and I'm just like so thankful that investigators were writing these things down, these observations, and having the opposite experience when I'm reading something and trying to figure out, and there's just kind of a rote report of the facts without any sense of what it was like for these individuals who were interacting either with a victim or interacting with an offender. Yeah, yeah, and it uh, it struck me when when uh, I was doing my research is those, like you say, those immediate statements that that first interview if it, depending on the circumstances of the case, it could be such a high level stress event that, you know, you might be trying to focus on, on your victim or your witness, and you've got six people calling you for an update so they can brief command or they can brief the, the executive team and a hundred different things going at once. And it's so easy to miss that. And it's just, it kind of, it kind of, one of those things that set chills down my spine and be like, wow, <laughs> you know, it's so mm-hmm. easy to, to take away the tools from you guys. And it just that hit me as as um, as I was I was reading on some of this. Um, you said uh, you know you you spent your time as a forensic psychologist working with uh, victims and uh, and uh, perpetrators. The relationship that goes into that because you have to spend time with these people. Um, as far as uh, the relationship and rapport of getting a, a prisoner or somebody who's who's facing charges to honestly answer. Um, cause I mean, depending on the level of experience a criminal has, they already know the answers you're looking for to get the outcome that they want. Have you, how do you balance the manipulativeness of, of an experienced offender as, uh, against defining, defining the actual truth that you're, that you're getting from them? Wow. There's so many different ways to go with that question. I'm not even sure, like I could go like three different paths. So I'll try to go down maybe a couple of different ones, you know. So one is I started, when I first got out of school, I did work with offenders and I'm sorry, and with victims primarily. So I did a lot of therapy with children who were incest survivors, um, who had been taken away from the home because of physical abuse or, you know, sexual abuse or neglect. And, you know, was, was either helping them, obviously trying to heal. Um, also, the, of course, there was also a legal component to that in terms of I would often be asked to testify of what I observed. Um, and sometimes in some ways, sadly, but in sometimes necessarily testifying about things like parental termination of parental rights and those kinds of things. And so I got a real trial by fire in a way, look at just trauma in children, because a lot of times these kids had just been taken away. And so you know, trying to navigate that. So I, I'm so grateful to have that experience because as you and I both know, the victims can get lost in these situations. And so I love that. And then I began doing more work with offenders. And so depending upon what the question is, one of the, uh, the distinctions between a forensic psychologist and a clinical psychologist, a clinical psychologist, if you come into my office as a cl- and I'm a clinician and you tell me, you can tell me all kinds of things. You can make up a bunch of lies. And really as a clinician, my job is to see the world the way you see it. 
and to help you navigate that, problem solve, figure out, I'm going to be asking you kind of probing questions about what you're telling me, but I'm not going to be calling up your wife and saying, you know, John said this, is it true? Or what is your perspective? Or what evidence do you have that you were late for work and you got a ticket? Can you bring the ticket in so I can validate that it was on this date? So we have a lot of tools as forensic psychologists in looking at outside data. And so I always look at outside data. So I make it very clear um, if I'm evaluating somebody who's up for parole, I'm evalu evaluating somebody who's gotten in trouble um, inside of a prison. And the question is, did, did this person's mental illness influence that person's behavior? And if it did, should their sentence or their, their punishment be less and those kinds of things. I'm gonna be not just talking to that inmate, I'm gonna be talking to the custody officer, I'm gonna be talking to people he was around to get a sense of you know kind of the totality of the circumstances. And so that is a very important as a forensic psychologist, never to take somebody at face value. And there's no judgment associated with that. But I mean, when you're in trouble, you know, you're facing prison time, you're facing the hole or whatever it is, there's a lot of motivation to, you know, present yourself in the best possible light or distort facts or those kinds of things. It, it is amazing, though, because I always tell people that I'm evaluating, look, I want to make sure that you understand the context of this. This is not a therapy session. Um, I have access to your medical records. I have access to your legal records, your C file. And so just want to give you a heads up about that before you tell me a bunch of stuff that might not be true. I don't normally say the last part, but it's implied. And, you know, I learned pretty quickly that, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter. I mean, people will still sit there and tell you, you know, what they think you want to hear. So it's very important to always look again at all the objective kinds of things. So, you know, one of the myths I think that I run across a lot is that a lot of people try to fake insanity. They try to fake like they're, quote, crazy to get off of um you know, and there have been to get off of a charge. And there have been certainly been individuals who've tried to do that. Um, Ken Bianchi, who was one of the Hillside Stranglers, was kind of famous for developing all of a sudden after he was arrested what he called multiple personality disorder, um, which we call dissociative identity disorder. Well, people who are genuinely um, insane legally at the time of a crime, there's al almost always an extensive history long before this crime happened of somebody who has, you know, had psychotic breaks, who's been on psych psychotropic medication, who's often been hospitalized, sometimes involuntarily. So, you know, that data tells you something. Now, we also know that people who have a severe mental illness, number one, are not, uh, they're not likely to be violent. So that doesn't mean that person is violent. Um, there are certain symptoms that are better predictors of violence than diagnoses. So, and we also know that people who have a severe mental illness also get really pissed at people they care about. You know, so just because you have a severe mental illness doesn't mean that had anything to do with your crime. So it's complicated, but we do have some, you know, other data, and it's very important to rely on that data as part of. Um, the interview. It's very difficult to pretend to be severely mentally ill, even inside of a prison, 24 hours a day. Yep. I, I am convinced that people can lie to me and lie to me convincingly. I don't have that big of an ego that I think I can spot a liar, a million. There's tons of data to show not true, but, but to, you know, to, to maintain that 24 hours a day over a period of time is very difficult to do. Yeah, yeah, it's just uh, that that uh, that occurred to me as I was putting this together because, um, you know, oftentimes we'll see it in the news. You know, a guy commit goes out and commits a heinous crime, 
and he just got on parole like a week ago and it's they always go back and saying how could the parole board do this you know Mm -hmm. and it's one of those things i think it's important for people to understand when it comes to doing those kind of evaluations i mean there's a lot that goes into it people you know people put a you know it's not just uh, one guy sitting on a parole board that wants to open up bed space and just kicks people mm-hmm. to curb there's there's a lot that goes into it and you can't you know human behavior is not something you can often quantify so uh but yeah i just thought it'd be interesting to, to get your take on what all goes into doing that evaluation because i've I've just had people just, you know, they, they, you walk into the room, especially if they're in a controlled environment and they spot you and they know exactly what, what checks to, you know, what checks to hit on the boxes to get the answer that, that they think that you want to make you go away. And it takes a lot of, a lot of reps and a lot of circling around to, to get to the truth. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, it can be feel like a dance sometimes. And, you know, you have to be aware of kind of the different steps and that there are different dances and, and those kinds of things. And, um, you know, again, we build in as many safeguards as we can. You know, the other thing I think that's always a big question is that, you know, what is the purpose of our criminal justice system? So if somebody has been in prison for 30 years, for example, um, for a terrible crime, and this person has been, let's say, a model inmate for those 30 years. And yet you look at the crime and you go, this person should never be out. I mean, they killed somebody and this person who's dead is never going to have a chance to, you know, so then it becomes, okay, what is the purpose? Is it punishment? That's a valid argument. You can say that. I mean, there's no right or wrong answer necessarily. If it's just punishment, then the argument can be made and has been made and has been successfully pursued that this person should get life without parole and never get see the light of day. If our, you know, if the purpose is partially rehabilitation, And you're looking at this, you know, we all know that 30 years down the road, this person is not the same person they were 30 years ago. Now, they could be worse, I guess, or they could be, you know, the same in some ways. So we have to look at all those different factors. And what we hear about are the unfortunate situations where somebody's been let out, and then they reoffend. Um, or they cut off their ankle monitor and go and, on a rampage or whatever. And, you know, unless we want there to be zero risk, which is another argument uh, for keeping up, you know, people behind bars, they've committed horrible crimes. There's going to be a certain amount of risk. We just have to mm-hmm. reduce it as much as we can. And as a society, we need to keep that in mind is that we are not excising people from society. We, we believe in the, the potential of rehabilitation. And I, as you uh, mentioned that, I, I was listening to some other interviews that you've done, and you mentioned, uh, I think it was Eric Smith out of Binghamton, mm-hmm. New York, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it struck me because I, I remember I was maybe eight or nine when that hit, and it was that was kind of one of the first, like, uh, 13-year-old did that type yeah. of things, like, maybe mm-hmm. I was nine or 10, and mm-hmm. I was like, wait, did I just hear that correctly? And you mentioned that you were, you got to look into his parole and, and his growth or uh, evolution over time. And, uh, and you're absolutely right. A 13 year old is not the same after they spend 30 years in prison, you know? And you know, that that's such an interesting case that you brought up, John, for a couple of different reasons. So I was interviewed for 48 hours about this case. And I was so lucky in the sense that I was able to review, as you alluded to, all of his parole hearings as part of that, which is something, you know, normally most people don't get to see. And there were so many takeaways for me about this. So clearly he is not the same person he was at 13. And yet when I looked at his, like you were saying, his evolution over time, 
to argue that at 21, you know, he should have been charged as a juvenile and released at 21. When you look at his parole hearings, I mean, it was, he was, he was frightening at 21. So I do not think in this particular case, now I wasn't sitting in on there, but I got to read the transcripts. It was really until he was well into his thirties that you do start seeing, you know, and he had some, this really, this one program that he was in for four years that really did seem to have a positive impact on him. It wasn't until his late thirties that you started seeing this guy really start understanding, I think, emotionally, as well as intellectually what he had done and starting to turn his life around in some respects. And so that, that opens a whole can of worms, right? When you have these youthful offenders, you know, it doesn't mean because you're 13, you should necessarily get out at 21 or 25. But I also think, and this is a personal opinion and professional opinion, that it is rarely, if ever, indicated that somebody who kills you know somebody at 13 should get life without parole i'm fine with saying okay after 30 years you're we'll review your case yeah i mean that's a long period of time i'm not saying they should be tried as juveniles but i do think there should be an opportunity at some point in time to have that case revisited yeah that that continuing continuing monitoring and and actually documenting these people that's a lot of resources. Uh, it is uh, a lot of resources. You know, and, and I think sometimes we uh, societally kind of fall through when it comes to mental health, uh, especially in the in the criminal justice system. You know, giving those people the 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 care that they need, or actually trying to get ID for early intervention in in circumstances. I don't know how you would spot uh, Eric Smith when he's nine and say that you've got trouble coming. I don't know. I don't know how we would be able to have a blanket mechanism in our society to do that, but um, I mean, I think that's that kind of early intervention is would be a would help mitigate things, but I I don't know what kind of mechanism would be there to do that. Um, but you mentioned um, as you mentioned this the the uh, you know horrible crime you go to jail never to be seen again. I had uh, I had Rod Sadler on who uh, investigated uh, Eastern Michigan serial killer. I want to say his name was Miller, um, but as the investigator um, or, or part of the investigation. He worked in that community long after, like this guy got picked up when he was only a few years on the, on the job, mm. but he got to watch that the guy, you know, the guy got at, through plea deals and anything else they wanted to do to get a conviction. They never actually charged him multiple homicides. They charged mm-hmm. him manslaughter or whatever else they could get to, to get a plea. So he's actually eligible for parole coming up relatively soon. And Rod uh, explained how he's watched, you know, not only to see, this guy through time um because he's met with him and he's met with his family but also to watch the impact on the victims who have to go every mm-hmm. time his parole comes up and relive the entire thing over and over again it's a that's a that's a lot but i i you know i, I don't know what the i don't know how you would ex, how you would uh, do do things to mitigate that either for the victims or to keep an eye on somebody like a smith or a miller to see when that line is you know can are you available are you worth bringing back into society. And I don't know how you have a mechanism there to watch for that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it comes down to like, we're talking about all the data that comes together. I do think you're right. And I think it's always trying to find some balance in terms of 
not re-victimizing and re-traumatizing the families because you're absolutely right. I think in New York, they were, they had, uh, you were up for parole every two years. And so for over 20 years, this family, every two years, got all of this stirred up. You know, they didn't have to, but of course they wanted to, felt compelled to write letters. And I don't, I don't think in New York you could actually go and testify, but in some states you can actually go and present before the parole board. I know that there's been a couple of attempts to pass bills that lengthen the amount of time that you're eligible for parole. So um, I think New York actually, um, and I think actually Eric Smith's family is very much active in this campaign to change this every two year parole eligibility to five years. So that might be one way to, you know, find some happier balance between a family who's already grieving. And, you know, as we all know, grief is a lifelong process. It might get better, but it doesn't end. And there, you know, you're grieving, not just what happened, but what's not going to ever happen, whether it's grandchildren or, I mean, just depending on what the situation is. So it is, there's such complex issues. Yeah. And I, and I think Smith in particular probably came up before those, those victim impact, the victim's rights and advocacy laws that kind of hit later in the nineties. And now, I mean, well-meaning, but also made people force people into ripping that bandage off you know every however many years so Mm -hmm. it's yeah that's uh, that's that's not an easy that's not an easy world to navigate um so i appreciate that i I really did i really think um the world of the forensic psychologist i think people might have an outside idea of it but i it's it's different when you you know they think psychologists they're thinking a couch they're not thinking yeah you get to go in with a case file and check this person out and determine whether or not all the, you know, all the, uh, the world of variables fit, you know, that line of questioning or that, that person's outlook. So that's, that's a fascinating job you got. I'm, I'm jealous. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's so interesting. And I will tell you, um, which is a really interesting and wonderful thing for me is that, and I always tell um, somebody that I'm evaluating is look, I am part of this pie. So as you alluded to, my opinion will carry some weight and hopefully it'll carry good, you know, substantial weight if I'm doing a good job and doing my due diligence. But ultimately it's the parole board or it's the judge or whatever who makes that decision. And so I'm happy about that. You know, that I'm not the one who has to swing the gavel or, you know, be the parole board. They're the ones who really have the difficult job of making that final decision. Yep. Yeah, it's a team effort. And but uh, you know, the 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 people, you know, every now and then when they hear that, you know, just got paroled, went out and did some heinous thing, they they just want to blame and they don't understand the yeah. mechanisms that go into that. So I, I think it's important to discuss that. Um and I but, would too, right? Wouldn't yeah. you? I mean, if oh, yeah. I love if somebody mm-hmm. that I loved was murdered by somebody who had just gotten out on parole, I would be beyond furious. I mean, oh, yeah. I would be one looking for somebody to blame and trying to figure out what went wrong and change that and all that. So it's completely yeah. understandable. Yep. Just a natural, natural reaction. Um, but uh, <laughs> I would, I, I want to jump into your book and I'm going to tell you right now that that was, I, I kick off reading that and I'm like, in a, I was like, this is a very easy read. I mean, that, you know, whenever, you know, not, not all, often, you know, not often, but, uh, you know, if you see PhD or doctor in front of somebody's name, you can flip the page and it's written for a PhD student or it's written very easy to understand. It's written for somebody like me, very <laughs> lowest common denominator. Yours, I start, I was just 
flipping through. I mean, it was, it's written in such a, in such a natural way that, that there is, it's just written for the common, common audience. And it's so packed with information. I will fully admit to information overload as I was getting into your book. Like I was getting to the point, I was like, I'd read one question and I'd be like, well, what else? What, what about this? And then I'd see your table of contents. I'd be like, well, let me jump over here. <laughs> you know, I, I got, uh, I got a little schizophrenic jumping back and forth. I was like, well, what about this? And I would jump over here, jump back. Um, but it was, it's fantastic reading. It's um, just the, the plat, the, um, the premise uh, and you can go into further detail, but the 101 question, serial killers, 101 questions, true crimes at true crime fans ask. Um, when I first saw the title, I was like, you know, what's gonna be fun. I'm going to see if she wants to come on and I'll have her quiz my wife and I, and we'll see how many questions we can get. Right. And then I start reading wow. it. I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> yeah. like, Oh no, this is, this would not work because that question use those questions as a springboard and then jump into research and jump into very, you know, it's not, we're not retreading true crime here. You're at, you're, you're digging in and you're explaining these questions that people often have. And I, uh, I just would like, I give me some background on, on how, what went into doing this? Well, it was really a fun book to write in so many ways. And I really can't take much credit for it because um, you've already alluded to, I've been doing a blog for psychology today for, gosh, I don't know, over 10 years, maybe 12 years at this point. And I've been very lucky to have a group of readers who have followed my writing through the years. And I do some other things as well. But, um, you know, you mentioned Helter Skelter earlier. Um, when I was a senior in high school, Ted Bundy also escaped prison in Colorado, as you know, or jail in Colorado and made his way down to Florida. And the Kaimega house at FSU was about 80 miles from my house. And I was a senior in high school. So I was, you know, about the same age as some of the women that he killed. And so I think that really started my interest because I just couldn't understand it. That was the thing. I couldn't understand why you would want to hurt people you didn't even know I mean they haven't done anything to you and so that kind of started my interest in serial killers you know many years ago and then I get of course I'm not alone there are many people who are interested in serial killers especially over the past five years it seems like and so I just started keeping a just a little journal or a little diary of different questions that I was getting from my readers I I don't always write about serial killers, but I almost always write about violent crimes. And so whenever I would get a question about serial killers, I would just kind of write it down thinking at some point, because I don't know, I didn't know all the answers to these questions. I mean, some of them were really complicated questions. And particularly when we're talking about international serial killers, which I've always been kind of interested in. I was like, I know that there are them, but I haven't really done a research. And so I really spent the time over COVID really just kind of researching that and kind of going, I'm just going to answer these questions in the best way that I can so, and put it in one place. And initially I just thought of it as something I could as a reference guide. And then a, and a, pub, a publisher approached me and said, Hey, I think this would be a great book. And that's kind of how it came to be. Yeah. You mentioned the, uh, the international side reading that the, um, the cultural eccentricities that that uh, were at play uh, when you compare, you know, I don't know whether it's a, a, a blitz offender over in America or a guy who, you know, kidnaps, you know, like gets a, you know, gets somebody into the van and then, you know, jumps them, stuff like that. The, there was one example in, in India, the guy using, uh, what was it, the, um, the shame of like an unwed mother to 
to convince a woman to take cyanide. And that was, that was like the mechanism. I was like, I, that's that the cultural aspects of that conflict with the U S so much. It's very interesting to, to read what the motivations were and what the mechanisms were in that and a different, a completely different culture. I was just, I was like, man, I could, I could, I could dive real deep into this, the, just looking at serial killers and other cultures. It was, so, that is one of the most interesting things to me, John, because it does say so much, I think about different societies, not in terms of creating individuals, there's no societal excuse for, oh, this, this society created this serial killer. But I think what it does tell us sometimes is who we value and who as a society we tend not to value and what, who the vulnerable groups are in different societies, because oftentimes that's who serial killers will prey on. And so, for example, you're exactly right, Mohan Kumar, which is who you're talking about, who is the Indian serial killer, his kind of MO, as you alluded to, was he would target um, women who were, a lot of them were in their early 30s, which is kind of becoming a quote, old maid in India. There's a lot of pressure to get married still. And there's still a dowry system in some parts of India. And these were women whose families were impoverished, couldn't afford a dowry. And he had a government job and he would basically approach these women and troll for these women and woo them and, you know, and kind of in secret. Uh, want to marry them, um, tell them he you know, was in love with them. He had no interest in a dowry, which was, I mean, just, I can't even imagine what a relief that would be if you're having all this pressure to get married and there's all these issues. And yeah. And then he would tell them we're going to elope and get married. And so be sure you bring your finest material, your, your jewelry, whatever you were going to bring, you know, wear it. And he would take them to a hotel that he would convince them to basically have sex with him because we're going to get married the next day. It's fine. And yeah, then the next day he would say, you know, you got to take a birth control pill because the last thing we want is for you to, you know, for this to be known and that we had, and he would give them this quote birth control pill that was cyanide. And that's just so diabolical. It's just so heartbreaking on so many different levels. And you're right. That would never happen in the United States because we have just a different frame, different, we have our own, you know, vulnerable groups for sure. Um, but that wouldn't happen here. Um, so it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if his motivations would fit into our same categories or his predilections, but it was just, but the mechanism alone is just alien. When I was reading it, it is. I was like, that's, it is. that's uh, fascinating to see how that works in other places. But yeah, the, um, you, when you mentioned the vulnerable populations, it reminded me of, of um, uh, Native American uh, populations. And I remember giving a, uh, I was, I was doing a, I was working with a, with a bunch of other writers, just kind of answering law enforcement questions if they had some kind of scene build, building in their book or something like that and somebody threw out like the the uh the gabby petito case or something like that and it was in just cases like that they just sky you know they skyrocket so fast mm -hmm. well when there's scores of vulnerable females yeah. disappearing every day and i just mentioned i i kind of made people mad when i just made I just highlighted that contrast as we're discussing it. Just, you know, she automatically isn't on good morning America for a week. And there's hundreds of girls going missing that don't even come close to getting yeah. that kind of attention. It, um, yeah, that's a, that's a real problem that we have is, is the, the, um, I mean, even in America, we, we still have, 
we still have that problem. You know, they're preying on those vulnerable populations and those populations might not have the media influence that others do. So that's, that's, that's a, that's a painful one. That's, that's uh, that, that doesn't always make us look all that great, but, but um, it is painful, but I, and you're right. I think we all have our, I guess I can call them blind spots or, mm-hmm. you know, because I think, I don't think a lot of times the media is sitting back in a room kind of going, okay, we're looking for a blonde haired, blue eyed, attractive victim. It, it's even scarier in a way because it's this kind of unconscious. We just somehow are, are communicating this person's more valuable by covering this. Um, and, and that's something I think, I mean, I think we are making progress and there's been a lot more awareness that we are, you know, that we as a society are unfair in how we cover and, and present different missing people or different crime victims, but we have a long way to go. Yeah. And I, and I, I wasn't intimating that it was intentional. Right. It was just, no. if, I, if you see a, you know, somebody who looks like a, a cheerleader from Friday Night Lights going missing that everybody's everybody's thinking yes. about it, you know, and it's just the media's job to follow that. It's just, but yeah, it's just a, it's a blind spot that culturally is, I, I think you're right. It's getting better, but I think it's shining a light here and there, but, uh, um, but looking at, you know, the internet, as you talked about the, uh, when we talked about, uh, the, uh, international side of things, you mentioned, you know, there's no one thing that goes into building a serial killer and you start out right with that. You know, I mean, you, you, when you, um, I think your first category was, uh, you know, statistically, demographically, you just explained, you know, how is it, you know, there is no one thing that goes into making a serial killer. It's kind of a more gestalt, I guess, you know, totality Mm -hmm. of the circumstances, Mm -hmm. um, which I don't think everybody always likes because they like the idea of, okay, this kid just strangled a squirrel. He's going to be a serial killer someday. Let's keep an eye on him. You know, they don't like the fact that you can come from suburbia and end up being, you know, committing horrible crimes. It just, I think it, I think it adds to that fear factor. um, When people, when you have to, when you tell people that, sorry, there's, we don't have a profile, you know, it's what I think it's one of the, I think profile is one of the most abused words in the English language, but it's that much scarier when you can't quantify what, what button somebody pushes to make somebody a serial killer. Absolutely. And I think it, you know, I've heard it described as a perfect storm in terms of what creates a serial killer or a recipe for a serial killer. So I think we're getting a better sense of some of the ingredients that go into making a serial killer. But number one, serial killers are so diverse. I mean, we, in terms of their motives, in terms of demographics, in terms of all kinds of things. And, you know, we, we think serial killers and who do we think about? We think about Ted Bundy. We think about John Wayne Gacy. We think about Gary Ridgeway. We think about these sexually motivated, you know, white men for the most part, and without realizing that there are, you know, all different kinds of motives, all different kinds of you know, of people who commit serial, serial murder. I mean, as a matter, you, you know, the definition of a serial killer is somebody who's killed two or more people in separate occasions. It's pretty broad. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to kind of fit into that category. And so when we talk about what makes a serial killer, you know, we know, for example, that there's an overrepresentation of people with abuse, you know, abused backgrounds that are serial killers. And yet you and I also know there are most people who are abused, never hurt anybody else, much less become serial killers. And in fact, we probably know people who had terrible childhoods and they were like Phoenix rising from the ashes. There were people who transformed that pain 
into helping other people. And so we have all these ingredients that tend to be more represented than others, but there's exceptions to every rule. And it does seem to be, like I said, this kind of perfect storm that lines up that makes somebody, you know, cross that line and begin to, to kill other people. Yep. Yeah. And you, uh, you lay it out in, in a great way. And I would, I'll admit it was funny when, when you started answering the question, you're like, okay, Bundy, Gacy, all these sexual predators. Mm-hmm. Um, but you met, and it caught me for a second as I'm reading that beginning of the book, you, when you laid out motivations, you went into money, revenge, all these other things. And I was like, I was like, I completely did not even consider like, yeah, absolutely. Greed as a motivator for serial killer. I mean, the stereotype is so well set on these sexually sadistic people mm-hmm. um, that, yeah, money, I mean, the, uh, the lady, it, it put me in mind of uh, the lady, I think, in Oregon or Washington that run, ran a halfway house, just start burying people in the backyard for insurance yeah. money. Serial yeah. killer. I think, but I think that was Dorothea that. Puente, right? Dorothea Puente? Uh, yes. who, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. He would have yep. these rumors, you know, borders. He started dying off um, one by one, you know. I mean, yeah, my money is that is right up there you know, in the top three, for sure, in terms of, but we don't, you're right, we don't tend to think of, um, of those individuals who with those motives as being serial killers. But in fact, when you're talking about, you know, being in danger from a serial killer, you're probably more in danger for somebody who's money motivated, because they're more likely to kill people they're close to, they can can get money from. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's right in front of us, too. But people don't think about it when you put that, that, blanket term serial killer out there there's a lot more people killed for their wallet every year than they are killed for some sadomasochistic you know definitely you know weird you know trip that some dude's on um but yeah it's it's it was just it's funny as i was reading i was like oh man yep i fell right into that stereotype like i I see serial killer i start thinking Dahmer. i don't think you know the serial armed robber who's just going around shooting people for their wallet that's it still fits the category but so the demo as you went into the demographics the statistics and all the different ways um um that lays out you you explain it so so well that all those people that really really want to hold on to those that trifecta and i forget the name you applied to it of you know what you wet the bed you start fires you you beat your cat you're going to be a serial killer it's yeah. you explain that so well that it, there's a ton more variables that go into it it's a it was very it's very educational um the, uh, Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, and it's easy to digest, which I which I really you know really liked because um when when in your bio when it says you 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 first read uh, Helter Skelter for me it was uh, Mine Hunter um, oh, with yeah. uh, John Douglas yeah. about the same age uh, yeah. when that came out and just because I uh, remember when I was eight or nine Shawcross was working in Rochester. And, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and I, and as a little kid, you know, mom and dad aren't going to let you, aren't going to talk serial killer with you. But, you know, even where I lived out in the sticks, it was, you know, you know, there, there's a maniac killing people in Rochester, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> type thing. Yeah. And, yeah. but it's, but it's like, it's like, wait a second. So you'd hear it when the adults don't think you're there and like, what do you mean a maniac's killing people in Rochester? That doesn't make sense. It, yeah. it doesn't compute to an eight-year-old, you know, definitely but, not. Um, but yeah, it's kind of fed, fed that, uh, that, that curiosity, I guess, over time. Um, I think that's, I think a lot, I mean, I wonder, wonder, you know, I think a lot of times 
people who become interested in true crime either have a family experience in something to a greater lesser degree, some, you know, somebody in their family is a crime victim, or you're right, they read about somebody, they heard about somebody um, at a relatively early age, and they became really interested in, in kind of the criminal mind or the dark side of human nature. Especially when the adults won't tell you what they're talking about. <laughs> you know yes yeah which yeah we all know that is not a good strategy that <laughs> never works that These never secrets works that your kids know about and they're, yeah. Yeah, and they're looking yeah. for what's going on yeah you listen to mom and dad it's your fault <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i mean that in a good way <laughs> um and going and going deeper in um i'm not gonna i don't want to give away a, a bunch out of the book but i but I also there's so many important layers to it uh, when you get into you know you get into the psychology, the motivations, how they're built, but you go into um, things that victims can do. You go into impacts on families and, and mm -hmm. how that affects. I think um, very importantly, you lay out, you know, tactics sort of, you know, the, the you know, the one of the questions is, you know, how do you escape? How do you survive or serial, mm -hmm. serial killer? And you lay it out very plainly. You, you don't give up hey, and you, you don't let your, you know, keeping your ears open. Um, but then you also go into the uh, laying out what how a family is is hurt by mm. by this, um, and it's it's a long like you said grief is forever. Yeah. But you uh, laid out a statistic that um, for every one victim, there's seven to ten um, you know second level second level victims laid in there, and it just exponentially grows. So. It's so, I know it really is tragic when you, because it is easy and you and I are talking about true crime and having this kind of love hate relationship sometimes with it, because, you know, how important it is to tell these stories with compassion um, and respect for the victims. Um, and it's amazing to me, you know, when you talk to victims and their families, number one, just the devastation that does, it's like a ripple effect. You know, it affects a community, it affects the immediate family, it affects the church, it affects the workplace. I mean, people feel less safe, you know, even if you didn't know that person. So it just has a ripple effect. And at the same time, one of the things I really wanted to talk about in the book is just the courage that you see among people who've survived, for example, who are willing to get up and testify and look somebody in the face and just families who, you know, pound the police, go to the media, um, you know, just determined to find out what happened to their loved one. It's just, it's so phenomenal to me to see that. Yeah. That, that survivors, that survivor spirit of, of, uh, just, uh, I forget which one it was. Oh, it was a girl in Charleston. I remember because I was like, I was like, oh, I was already gone by then. <laughs> you know, you talked about the the victim in Charleston who, who, uh, you know, guy has a drop on her um, with a gun. She disturbs him enough that he fumbles for it. She picks it up and lays him out. And it's yeah. like, yeah, and it's just never giving up. That's just it. But uh, through um, this, I mean, that's just an ancillary point. But um, do you have other, is there best practices that you've found uh, through your researching these questions of victim uh, uh, response or, or uh, you can't say victim precipitation, but conditions that one can avoid to, uh, to, um, you know, survive, I guess, so to speak. I mean, the main takeaway that I found, which was actually pretty grim in some respects, but the main takeaway I was that I came away with in this one study that was done in Germany was that you can't get in the car. You know, you cannot be, you know, you've got to do, it's better to fight than ever to comply. And that the odds of you surviving 
by complying. Even when somebody has a gun or a knife, the odds of you surviving go so far down. And that was pretty disheartening for me to read that. But it's also at the same time, very clear. Um, I mean, this guy really did from Germany kind of take all these different you know, cases and kind of go, okay, if somebody is to survive, how do we increase the odds? And we, you know, we all know people who, you know, when you get scared or you're threatened, you want to freeze or somebody says, I got this gun, get in the car or this knife or whatever. I mean, who wouldn't understand somebody just kind of, you know, letting them put the ties behind your back. And sometimes we can't avoid those things, but it was so stark. Like I said, the findings and the findings just were, again, you know, the findings were that your odds of surviving just go way down when you are under in somebody's control um, and you, you can't, and you know, and you're confined in some respects. And so, you know, there, unfortunately there was no like, okay, so do this. You know, it was just more like fight, do whatever you can, but that's your best chance. Yep. Yeah. I also uh, noticed the, um, I mean, some very recent studies of uh, victimology here in the States that uh, of, um, Oh man, I'm horrible with names, but you laid out a couple studies of, you know, somebody trying to see if you can get somebody into a van and then the amount of college oh. kids, they actually got to go with strangers for money or even allow themselves to be bound up at some point. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's terrifying, isn't it? I mean, it really is. I wish I could think of that study as well. I can't, but I know there was a, I think it was on the today show actually, where they, they went out and, you know, gave all these lessons to these kids about safety and stranger danger and all kinds of things. And then they had, oh gosh, I can't remember. He was from the Today Show, I think, who did this experiment. Um, yeah. Uh, is this ringing a bell, John? Like, yeah, it's like, it is. I was, oh, okay. Hold on a second. Um, da, 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 da. Oh, sorry. I, but yeah, as I was reading it, I just, oh, Hofstra University was one, 2014, Jeff Rosen and par, partnership yep. with Hofstra yep. University. Yeah. Um, so they do this, so they did this training. This is what to look out for, you know, basically citizens watch type training. Don't you know, keep your head on a swivel. Mm -hmm. And then they showed up with a van, which that should be a red flag by one, right? A creepy, <laughs> really? creepy cargo van. <laughs> Nothing good happens in a van. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Creepy cargo vans aren't cool yeah. anymore. Stop watching Days yeah. and Confused. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, and they, there was so many kids uh, that they actually got, oh yeah, for some money, they jump in the van, go downtown. Yes. And that was it. That's statistically speaking, you just walked right through the gate. You just handed yourself to them. Yeah. <laughs> that is, yeah. I remember that study so clearly and it was so, I mean, it was so disturbing to, you know, to parents and the kids who are watching this, you know, and it's kind of like, what do we do? And, and there's all kinds of potential explanations. One of them being that we still have this, we as in younger kids still have this idea that bad guys look ugly. You know, you know what I mean? Bad guys look like bad guys. They have horns or, you know, you know, it, it's just so difficult because developmentally, you know, we think about kids and how they see the world or whatever. It's just hard to think of them being able to understand that and navigate that in any kind of useful way. Yeah, but as a yeah, as a parent though, it's just oh, it's just god awful frightening thinking. Oh, yeah. It really is. It, <laughs> yeah. Like you said, I mean, can you imagine seeing one of those parents? You've just sit down and read them the riot act about safety and all this, and then they go out and you think about peers, and I mean, there's just so many variables that parents can't control. You know, <sighs> peer pressure, and you know, the sense of like all kids have, which is you know. I'll live forever. Nothing bad will ever happen to me, et cetera, et cetera. And some of that, I just think as parents, and I know you have 
much younger kids than I do, sometimes you just have to hold your breath and, and jump with faith into, you know, do what you can. And, but it's just, it is that, that study was terrifying. And because oh, they, yeah. they showed yeah. it remember they, they showed this on the today show or with jeff rosin it was it really was scary yep yeah and they're college kids that at this point in 2013 they've probably all grown up with discovery id <laughs> it's like, yeah. what are you doing yeah <laughs> exactly so. no yeah i mean i'm thinking i actually read an article one time that says here's why your daughter should be a true crime fan um because my poor my poor girls, I have 19 and 21. It's like, sometimes I think they're going to be walking through the world with some kind of stealth gun, you know, because I'm like sending them things like, oh, there's finger polish now that you can put your hand in or, you know, just make sure it's safe. And I think there's a good part of that. But then I think sometimes, are they going to be scarred for life? Like, well, you can't trust anybody in the world, you know, so finding that balance is hard. Yep. Yeah, that's a that's some you know like being in a crowd trying to wrangle a nine year old and a four year old and walking through a crowded place or or like a busy theme park or something and the wife will say something and I'll just not even acknowledge and she mad what you're not even listening to me I'm like well I'm sorry I'm so busy trying to figure out how many of these people are trying to kidnap a kid you know? yeah because <laughs> we know it's one of them there, yeah. there one of them yeah, out here. Yeah. <laughs> yep. so oh, man. It's, that's yeah, so funny. true though. <laughs> It is. I know. Yep. Oh yeah. Paranoia is paranoia is a good thing sometimes, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, just, and I'm let's sorry, everybody. Hi, yeah. Let's just call it hypersensitivity. Yeah, when we yeah. know it's paranoia. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I swear everybody, I'm not that crazy, but you know, if I don't listen to you in a crowded place, there's probably a reason, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when it's your kids. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, like, mm-hmm. it's not crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, it's legit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I, I feel like we could probably talk for six hours just on the book. There's so much into it. And it's such a great premise of you collecting the questions that come from your reader group for over time and diving in and explaining them out in such an easy to digest way. I, I love that book. I, 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 sl- I, like I said, I was bouncing all over that thing. <laughs> well, I'm thrilled. And like I said, I'm always happy to come back on if you want to do it again sometime. So I know. It's great. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Well, I look for, is there anything next? What are, what are you working on next? I, I mean, outside of the 30 other things you got going on. Well, that's the problem. You know, I think I've got like, like it's not ADHD for real. It's just more like writing, you know, it's specific yeah. to writing. So yeah. I have several projects that are kind of on, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I keep my column going and, you know, keep those things that are always, that I'm always doing, but then, um, you know, I'm still, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, there's, I've got so many projects in the works that I think I'm just going to need to kind of parse it down a little bit and focus. Um, I, I'm, I like this shiny new object. I don't know about you if you ever feel that way. Like yep. it's, you know, let's do something else. You know, now that you've done all this research, just like, I'm done with that. You know, so I'm working on that, being more, you know, focused and completing things. So it's up in the air, I guess. Yeah, it's like uh, you do the research. It's like, oh, questions answered. I'm good. Exactly. Like, Wait a minute. I'm we're, done. We're just I'm getting done. started. That's <laughs> yeah. so true. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody else knows like the answer sometimes. yet. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yep. Wow. <laughs> um, but we've get, we've been going uh, probably a little over an hour now. I, I don't want to keep you. It's a, you know, it's Tuesday night. Um, you've got dozens of animals to, to look after. I do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so um, you're, you've got your YouTube channel, your podcast is social media, any social media links you want to share? 
No, I think, I, I, I don't know if it's social media. I do a Substack newsletter, which it's sure it's free. And I think that's kind of fun because I try to keep up with the more recent cases. Um, and then I mentioned Unmasking a Murder, which is my YouTube channel. And then LinkedIn. Um, I don't do a lot. I haven't done a lot of Instagram. I, I've flirted with TikTok, but I haven't really made a move on it. I've heard it's fantastic things for books and all that. I do a few of them and then I just kind of get, so, so that I think I've pretty, and then my, my website is drjoneyjohnston.com. That's pretty easy. So those are the main ways, I guess, to communicate. Well, you're, uh, you're always invited back here. Cause like I said, I, you know, we scratched the surface on this thing. I, I uh, just, there's tons of stuff. I, you know, I just, like I said, I'm jealous of your job. So <laughs> Well, thank you. And yeah. like I said, anytime, anytime. Yeah. So, well, I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me and um, everybody. Um, thank you for joining us tonight and I'll be back next week. Have a good night.